Welcome to the Q-Law Pod and our special series, What's Next with Afshin Chowdhury. Each episode, Afshin chats with Queen's Law grads about their experiences, their education, and their career path after law school to explore the idea that there is no one way to be a lawyer. For other episodes of the Q-Law Podcast, visit soundcloud.com backslash queens-law or your favorite podcast provider. In this episode of What's Next, Afshin chats with Colonel Dylan Kerr. Starting as a signal officer in 1995 and making a 2006 about turn into military law, Colonel Dylan Kerr, CD Law 09, became the Canadian Armed Forces Director of Military Prosecutions in June of 2021, starting a four-year term. It is in that capacity that Kerr now oversees all military prosecutions in the Canadian Armed Forces. The Ottawa-based agency he now heads includes five regional officers, 23 full and part-time prosecutors, and another seven support staff. We hope you enjoy this episode with Colonel Dylan Kerr. Good afternoon, Kingston, Ontario. We're live on air at CFRC 101.9 FM. Thank you so much for tuning in today for this week's special Q-Law Pod, What's Next with Afshin. I'm so excited to announce that this is the start of Season 2. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. You have so many amazing episodes to look forward to. We have John McIntyre talking about authenticity and how it's like to navigate the legal field as someone a part of the LGBTQ plus community, an amazing conversation that was truly treasured. We also have coming up an interview with Justice Donald McLeod and talking about code switching and growing up in the hood, navigating that, the legal field. What? So many things to look forward to. And today, for the first time ever, we have our guest here in studio, live on air with us. We have Colonel Kerr, thank you so much for joining us today. This is so exciting. Thanks, Ashin. Yeah, really excited. Uh, really happy to be here and honored to uh, start season two with you. It's great. Oh, this is oh, this is so exciting. It's it's just we are so grateful to have you. And why don't we just get right into the first question? So it's Tuesday, and as our viewers, our loyal loyal viewers, know, our first question is always: What did you do yesterday on Monday? Walk us through your day. Oh, all right. Uh, well, I worked from home yesterday, which uh, I think uh, a lot of people um, post-pandemic will be familiar with. Uh, most of our folks work at least two days in the office and a week. And uh, depending on what the week looked like, sometimes for me, that's five days in the office. But yesterday I was working from home. I uh, started my day uh, with a, a meeting about uh, with my assistant director uh, about a review of some upcoming legislation we've been asked to provide some input into. Uh, and... Um, I followed that up with a few uh, other meetings, including a meeting with you at uh, today's uh, session. (laughs) It was mostly, uh, it was a meeting Monday for me. (laughs) Ours was the worst one, of course. (laughs) No, ours was great. Ours was great. And short, short is always good for meetings. Yeah, yeah, it was was such a highlight to to meet you. And and we will be talking this episode about kind of biases that we have about the military and careers in the military. Now, after signing off, I remember thinking, wow, this guy is so bubbly and sweet. And I didn't actually expect that because in my head I'm thinking, oh, military, very structured and professional and you know what I'm talking about. So it was it was really, it was really, I think, eye-opening for me. And I'm really excited to kind of debunk some more myths about the military throughout this episode and talk about that. And you were talking about working on an upcoming legislation. Are you allowed to talk about that or is that secret? Well, the, uh, the content, unfortunately, is uh, still Ooh. cabinet confidence. But uh, <laughs> as soon as it's tabled, of course, it'll be public. But uh, yeah, we... Uh, uh, we'll sometimes get consulted. Uh, my office is not a policy making or po- even really policy advising office. Uh, we have our own internal policies, of course. But uh, in terms of how the military justice system develops, that's for the policy folks and ultimately Parliament to decide. But they do come and ask us for our uh, our thoughts on when when they're considering policy changes, which is a good thing, of course, because we're the ones that have to make it work on a day to day basis. So. It's always good to find out from the people, the, the practitioners, the day-to-day uh, folks, whether or not this is going to work or whether it's going to cause more problems than it uh, solves. So always happy when they come and consult us. 
Yeah, of course. Of course, there's such a difference between theory and practice. So it is nice to hear that they're they're taking the practical perspective into their approach. And actually, why don't we why don't we go back? Why don't we go back to who were you before law school? And why why choose law school in the first place? What was life like before coming to Queen's Law, the greatest law school in all of Canada? <laughs> so I, I I enrolled in the military fairly young. I was 19 and uh, I joined to to do my undergrad at the Royal Military College of Canada here in Kingston as well. And uh, I started as a signal officer. So I was um, my trade really was involved in field communications, tactical radio systems, and uh, planning field networks. Uh, for the Army. And uh, after I graduated uh, RMC, I finished my signal officer training here in Kingston as well. And then I was posted out to Edmonton, where I served for just over five years with uh, the one Canadian Mechanized Brigade headquarters and signal squadron uh, out in Edmonton. And uh, doing all field work, I worked with the Combat Engineer Regiment for a few years and uh, with the headquarters uh, for a few years as well, and uh, while I was out there, I had a chance to do a tour in Afghanistan. Whoa. And that was where I really first got my uh, bug for, for law. Watching the military lawyers work in Afghanistan was a real eye-opener for me. Oh, could you, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. I, it, the, I was, well, for starters, I was just fascinated with how involved they were in af- absolutely every aspect of what happened uh, outside Canada. So, I, I mean, they were doing everything from negotiating small claims with the locals. Uh, mm. You know, I, I had a table set up outside of uh, of the camp once a week uh, to advising the commanders about military discipline and uh, the regular administration of, of the soldiers that were there uh, under their command to, uh, to targeting international humanitarian law topics, rules of engagement and... and uh, all things operations. So it was absolutely fascinating. And I, I recall uh, uh, one meeting I was at with the commander on the ground, and he had all of his his advisors and all of his staff with him. And uh, I was uh, f- filling the role of his uh, G3 uh, staff officer, which is the person that takes care of operations. So there was an intelligence person, an operations person, a signals person, an engineer, and the lawyer. <laughs> and I remember the commander. There was a there was an operation the commander was considering that uh, he was really interested in in doing. And um, for various reasons, each of the staff officers around the table were trying to explain to the commander that, that from their perspective, mm-hmm. it was maybe not a great operation. There was there were all sorts of different reasons why we thought it was maybe not the right time for it. We weren't properly resourced. And uh, the commander went and, and told each one of us. Uh, Okay, I hear what you're saying, but you're not you're not listening to me. This is something that's important to me. Mm-hmm. I want to hear about solutions. I I I don't want to hear about problems. Mm-hmm. And when it got to the lawyer, and the lawyer, the military lawyer said, "Sir, I I have a few concerns as well, legal concerns as well." Uh-huh. Immediately, the commander said, "Okay, thank you very much. We'll, we're going to find something else." And that oh. was the end of it. And I remember sitting at that table thinking, the chances of me being the commander are very very small. But maybe I could be the only person around the table that the commander listens to without <laughs> question. Yeah. And uh, from that from that point on, I started uh, eating my meals with the military lawyers, asking oh. them about the LSAT and uh, oh, and, and no, going to law school LSAT. and all of these things, <laughs> and what it was like to work in, in the uh, in the office of the judge advocate general and be a military lawyer. And uh, wow. I fell in love with it. Wow. And then I, I remember phoning my wife from Afghanistan and saying. Uh, well, would you think if I signed on a, a longer a term of service with the military and tried to get into the military law program? And she said, what are they doing to you over there? <laughs> uh, but she could tell I was hooked, and, and that's what happened. I came back to Canada, and uh, within a year, I, I wrote the LSAT and had applied to Queen's Law, and wow. to the military law program, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. That's the the vividness that you can just recall the phone call and those moments. And passion is just something so contagious. I'm sure. I'm sure your wife could also tell from across the phone line that this is this is something that really speaks to you. Yeah. And actually, curious enough. So, if someone has an interest in practicing international law within that realm, you would say the military is a good option for that. Oh, the military is a fantastic option. That's what first caught uh, you know caught me. I, I thought I would practice international humanitarian law and international human rights law. That's really what I, I first uh, was interested in when I applied to law school. And uh, I, and I took all sorts of courses in those areas as well. And as military lawyers, you're, you're trained in those areas for sure. 
Um, but the while I was at law school, the more criminal law I did, I really caught the criminal law bug. And uh, <laughs> yeah. by the time I graduated, I knew that uh, it was that was the area I really wanted to focus in. See, this is kind of fun because on our show, we've had a lot of people who I like to call criminal law baddies, and I knew that you're one of them. And that's so exciting for me because I feel like so many people, especially who have this kind of drive towards criminal law, have like a serious drive towards this idea of justice, and especially at the courts, it's human justice. And I also think now we're getting into some of the saucy, saucy topics of the show where we have a lot of people who are interested in criminal law and they're very social justice oriented. Now, the thing is, there's a building sense of distrust towards law and enforcement and the military, et cetera, et cetera, which I'm sure is not foreign to you and you're well aware of this. So maybe let's talk a little bit about that. So those who have a social justice advocacy heart and passion, is that inconsistent with a career as a military lawyer? No, absolutely not. I, the, you know, there's a couple of things about practicing in military law that I think are, are really fascinating. And in the, in the first one, uh, I'm going to answer your question sort of indirectly, we'll uh, circle around it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the first one uh, that comes to mind is just the, the broad number of areas of law that are practiced in the office of the JAG. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, we're dealing with administrative law, we're, when I, we're dealing with op, what we call operational law, which is really international humanitarian and international human rights law. Um, we're dealing with criminal law or quasi-criminal law and, and a crossover between the criminal law and administrative law in terms of like disciplinary tribunals and these things. But also contract law, employment law, mm-hmm. uh, you, you name it, pretty much we practice in some way or touch in some way just about every area of law imaginable in a fairly small office. Um, and there's a lot of mobility. So if you're, you know, you're practicing in one area of law and you, it turns out that you're really not satisfied with what you're doing, it's very easy, even within the office of the JAG, to move from one role to, to another until you mm-hmm. find what you have the passion for. And in each of those areas, military lawyers, I mean, at their core, military lawyers are trying to assist commanders and decision makers within the Canadian forces to make the best decisions and make lawful decisions uh, in, in uh, you know, follow Canadian law, follow the constitution, follow uh, the, the charter. Mm-hmm. So in, in that sense, you're um, in the same way that, a, you know, a public lawyer is in a way a protector of the constitution and the charter. Mm-hmm. Military lawyers very much uh, perform that function as well within the Canadian forces. So if you have a social uh, justice bent to you, what better place than to practice in an area uh, with, you know, trained professionals that want to do the right Mm -hmm. thing, Mm -hmm. that are operating in demanding circumstances and will listen to you. They want your advice, they need your advice, and they're going to listen to you uh, because they recognize that you're an expert. Uh, so I, I think it's a fantastic area to practice in, regardless of what type of law you're interested in. Oh, this is so exciting. Okay, so in my head, I have 10,000 questions that I want to ask. However, let's let's go back to law school. So you, you went to law school, you went to Queen's Law in the greatest city ever, Kingston, Ontario. And tell us a little bit about what your time there was like. And you said that you had an interest in the criminal law courses. Do you have any courses or experiences that you fondly think of, things that you didn't like so much, you didn't feel like vibe with you too much? Uh, yeah, okay. So great questions. So I was a little bit older when I arrived. I think it was, I had, oh, I turned 30, yeah, 31 just before I started uh, first year. So I had, you know, I'd been working for... Uh, seven or eight years yeah. between my undergrad and, and when I started say, law school. But you the 30s school. are the new 20s. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, and there, I mean, there's, I, there's, there was a huge benefit to that, I think, as well, because I, I do recall even in first year, there were some classes where I felt I had a bit of a leg up just from, you know, real mm. life experience. Yeah. I had always one sure. of few, even in, you know, a property class, I was one of few people that actually owned a house and <laughs> paid a mortgage and, you know, just those types of things helped a little bit to understand some of the concepts. Yeah, uh, that's just like a pipe dream for us in law school. <laughs> <laughs> Will I ever pay off my debt in time to buy property? We'll see. <laughs> 
And uh, yeah, and, th- and there were other life circumstances. Like when I got accepted, I got accepted into Queens. I, I got accepted into the military law program. And my daughter, my second child, my daughter was born all within about a two week oh period of time. Oh my goodness. So <gasps> when I started first year, she was um, about six months old. So. Oh my goodness. And, I've and my so son was three at the time. That. So young oh kids. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, young kids, a little bit older. And, uh, but I, I absolutely loved law school. I loved oh. every bit of it. Um, my, my wife probably loved it a little bit less because, <laughs> you know, with the young kids at home and I was trying to immerse myself in both of those worlds, yeah. I really was trying to live two lives at the same time. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I had, had a blast. I thought everyone, I loved everyone. I'm lying a bit. I loved every one of my professors almost. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I loved every area of law. I, like to me, to me, law school was absolutely brilliant. Um, I, you know, you go through, if, uh, from my own experience, you know, I went through these stages of, uh, you know, just sheer fascination with how important the legal concepts are in mm-hmm. every fabric of, of society. And mm-hmm. I remember even my probably halfway through first year going home and saying, I, you know, I don't know how we survived without one of us ever having, uh, you know, a law school education because <laughs> every single thing you do in your entire life is touched in some way by the law, whether That's you true. recognize it or not. It's so true. And yeah. By the end of uh, the first year, I remember telling every one of my relatives, like, everyone needs a lawyer. <laughs> Most people don't know they need it, need one, but everyone needs a lawyer in some capacity. Yeah. So I, I just loved it. And, and I got, I, I immersed myself in it too. I mean, in... Um, I was in all three years. I was involved with the Law Student Society. I was the um, uh, vice uh, chair, and then the chair, and then the president of the Law Society over the three years. I uh, played in a criminal law themed rock band with the, with other Queens Law folks. No way! What was the name of the band? We were Criminal Law Review. <laughs> we were That's Kingston. Epic. We, we built ourselves as Kingston's <laughs> loudest, loosely based crime themed rock band. That is too good. <laughs> yeah, you should do a reunion. <laughs> I, I would love to. In fact, uh, you know, I think it's, well, it's our 15-year uh, reunion next year. I don't know if all of the guys will be back, but I'm really hoping by our 20-year we can put the whole band back together for a no show. Way. That would be great. We have a annual charity concert called Lollapalooza where we have the bands play. Did you have that during your yes. time? Yes. Yeah, we oh, headlined okay. t- twice. Oh. Uh, yeah, in our second and third year, we were the headliners for Lollapalooza. That is so cool. Oh, little plug, Lollapalooza next week. Get your tickets. It's on Thursday. And I, I wish I wish we could have your band perform, but maybe in the future, maybe there could be like a generational comeback and you can come and play your tunes. That That's so cool, though. That is so cool. So you really are like to your core criminal law baddie, though. <laughs> I, I, I just loved it. And, you know, part of that is uh, in my second summer, um, I, I was asked, during my summers, I worked with the office of the JAG, uh, mostly out of the uh, regional office they have here, the, the base military lawyers here in Kingston. And um, the military prosecution service had received way more appeal files mm-hmm. than they were than normally ran, and they were looking for help with them. And uh, they, had, they were sort of farming them out to other offices within the JAG, and they had heard that there was a summer student working for the office here in Kingston and asked mm-hmm. whether uh, I could do some research uh, for this appeal. And I ended up doing all the research and writing the first draft uh, uh, of this uh, appeal case on, on a criminal law issue. And then I was asked to go and brief uh, my the results of my work to the director at, at the time. And that that was what sealed it for me, seeing how smart and yeah. uh, hardworking and, uh, the, the military prosecutors were mm. I I was I came away from that thinking this it really is the place that I that I want to be and then that so I really focused my efforts in uh, into criminal law in third year wow and then uh, had a chance to article with a, a principal who who was a, um, both a military prosecutor and a, and a crown attorney he was twenty five year crown attorney with the uh, uh, on uh, Ontario Mag. Crown Office, and uh, he was a Reserve Force prosecutor, and he was working with us, sort of uh, part time as a military prosecutor. So oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I, it was a brilliant combination because he had twenty five years of oh my cr- criminal law experience to download for me, and I had, you know, by then about a dozen years of military experience yeah. that I could help him with because he was trying to get more military experience. So, so we shared each other's experiences, and it was just fantastic. Yeah, actually, touching on that. 
You said that you joined the military at age 19? I did, yes. Yeah, so what, I feel like that's atypical to someone like me who grew up in downtown Toronto, city girl. What interested you to join the military at such a young age? <laughs> I, well, it was, I mean, it was really about Royal Military College in the, in the early days. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, um, my grandfather and his two brothers all uh, you know, joined the Two of them joined the Canadian forces and one joined the uh, the British army in September 1939 with the first Canadians Whoa. that went uh, overseas for World War II. And all of them survived the war. All of them started families. At, um, my grandfather in, in Hamilton, Ontario, where, where most of my family is, uh, one of his brothers in Calgary and uh, the one that uh, served with the British army stayed uh, in England after after the war. Uh, but my grandmother had these sort of fond memories of my grandfather's military time after he got back from the war. Oh, wow. And she always told me at a young age, uh, because my grandfather, when he retired from the Canadian Forces, was a military officer, I could go to Royal Military College. Yeah. Which was true uh, many, many years ago. You basically had that someone in the family yeah. that was an officer that would sort of vouch for you to yeah. give in. It had long been the, the case. Uh, but she put the bug in my ear about, about military college. And uh, there was a tour of the military college being done by, by my high school. So I signed up to, to go on the tour. And when I got to the campus and saw, saw it, it, there was something that it yeah. just sparked an interest in me. Okay. Uh, and so I... When it was time to apply for universities, I I applied and I actually didn't get in the first year. Okay. And uh, ended up taking a, a gap year. I uh, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life. I was trying to figure it all out. And yeah, um, yeah, very relatable. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, it was uh, I had applied to a few other universities the following year, and I had gotten into a couple different programs that had some interest for me, but nothing really resonated strongly. Mm-hmm. And and my grandmother had said, well, are you going to reapply to, to Royal Military College? And I really wasn't. I didn't think my my chances were very good, but I didn't want to tell my grandmother that. So I said yes, and then, of course, I couldn't lie to my grandmother, <laughs> so then I had to go back and reapply. And I, So I went down to the recruiting center in, in Hamilton, and I said, you know, I, I want to renew my uh, application to, to Royal Military College. Yeah. And uh, they rushed me in for an interview. I did another interview, and uh, I left. They basically said, you know, your application is not that much different than it was the year before. So, you know, I don't, you know, what makes you think you're going to do any better this year? And I said, ah, I, you know, I don't really know. But, uh, you know, they put my application in. And um, about a month later, I got the phone call saying, yeah, you've been accepted. Oh, wow. And the way I went to basic training, uh, which I, I think I did the last year of basic training in uh, Camp Chilliwack out at BC. Now all that basic training is done mostly in Saint-Jean in, uh, in Quebec, just south of Montreal. And um, that was it. Like it just from there, the opportunities just one after the other have wow. just been incredible. And I've, wow. I've never regretted a single moment of it. And I've, uh, I've had just amazing experiences. Oh. So I, you know, I would tell, I, in fact, I do tell anybody who, who, who asks. I, I mean, if you are graduating high school and you don't know really what you want to do with your mm-hmm. life. Enroll in the military. Get get a little bit of experience. You enroll whatever go for you know three for a three year term. You're going to get some great exposure. You're going to get some great physical training. You're going to get some some training in a in a trade, and it's going to buy you some time to figure out uh, mm-hmm. what you want to do with your life. And um, many, I think, in those first few years, will find uh, a real satisfaction uh, with the opportunities that military gives you. Yeah. Uh, so I, it's been fantastic. I mean, RMC was amazing. Of course, the RMC Queens rivalry. My my wife was a Queens undergrad. She's got she has she's no a, a a BA and a BEd from Queens, and we met in my final years at RMC and her final years in, oh, in education. No we met here in Kingston. What? So there's that as well. I mean, it's Kingston's wow. been a huge part of my life, and, and the military has been a huge part of my life. Oh, okay. And is your is your supposed to teacher? She is, yeah. She's oh, okay. she's an occasional an occasional teacher right now in yes. Ottawa in the Ottawa Carleton uh, District School Board. Oh, so fun, so fun. Yeah, I also did the BA BEd program, so there you have it. <laughs> and I, I love your story. I love how your story was about you also kind of finding yourself and your passion, navigating through. But it does it sound like okay, you liked what you were doing, but it was only when you went to Afghanistan where you felt like, yep, yeah, 
That's what I really want to do. So tracing that is very interesting. I I was actually wondering. So personally, I'm a little intimidated by the military. To be completely honest, I'm, I'm just a little I'm scared. <laughs> what? Is, so, but maybe it's because of what I see in the movies and, and TV shows. Could you talk maybe a little bit about what the culture is like? Yeah, I yeah I, I think you know movies don't. Uh... <laughs> you know, that causes more problems, I think, probably than, than than help because I you know, here's how I would describe the military. It is it's just a small microcosm of society. So we just have our own mini society within Canadian society. And that mini society shares most of its traits and values and, and ideals with the broader Canadian society. We just happen to have our own healthcare system, we have our own police force, we have our own mm. justice system, we mm. have, you know, all of these things, but they all look in, in, in many ways like the, our civilian counterparts. Uh, yeah, there's a little bit of differences in, in, in procedures. For instance, if you're talking about the military justice system, it, a, a court martial looks a lot like a criminal trial, mm-hmm. a lot like a criminal trial. Okay. has a few different procedural rules. Uh, yeah, council where military uniforms. Uh, we, we salute the judge instead of bowing. Uh, but w- the core functions are, are exactly the same. Like the, my, my service, uh, when we analyze uh, a case that comes to us and decide whether it's going to go to court martial or not, we're doing a screening uh, process that looks identical to mm-hmm. the prosecution services across the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, each province has their, you know slightly different take on their evidentiary threshold, whether it's they call it, you know, reasonable prospect of conviction versus uh, you know reasonable likelihood of success, or there's a few different uh, you know iterations of that. But every service has an evidentiary threshold requirement, as do we. Uh, every service has a public interest requirement, as do we. Some of our public interest factors are a little bit different to adjust to the needs uh, of the military and military discipline. So there are some things that we consider. Uh, would maybe make a case more important to us and more serious to us than it would be if a civilian mm-hmm. uh, did it. And we have some offenses that are, you know, different. Like you can, yeah. you can be charged criminally with failing to show up to work. <laughs> you know, so and when I say you know criminally, I mean quasi criminally. But really, something if it was serious enough and we did a court martial, you could be convicted for not going to work with something that would carry a criminal record. Oh wow! So there's a difference, but wow, yeah. but the the process behind it, um, the you know the the legal thresholds, you know convictions based on beyond a reasonable doubt standard, mm-hmm. the same it is in a criminal trial. The evidentiary rules are you know almost almost identical. Okay. Um, it's it, so and that carries through. I mean, military life, yeah, there there are differences. Uh, but there are way more similarities than there are, are, are differences. Wow. I, okay, on this topic, I was doing some reading and we're getting into some of the more, I guess, spicy topics. And I feel I feel like, Colonel Kerr, you've been so generous. You're coming in here live today in person. I'm here pressing you with some of these hard topics. But, but I know that you already agreed that you're perfectly open with helping us have these more difficult topics and conversations. And so what I've been hearing about and reading about is that a lot of people are advocating that certain charges should be taken out of the military judicial system and into the Canadian criminal judicial system. So those of you who are tuning in, there's two different courts, one for the military and one for criminal law, just entirely for society, as Colonel Kerr was saying about the microcosm and the little society that there is. So one of those infractions that people are concerned with is sexual misconduct in the military. And I know that you have been kind of in the front lines also helping to develop the law in this area. And I was wondering if you could touch base on that, whether what, yeah, what you have to share so that we can also learn about the importance of these multiple structures and what to expect. Yeah, yeah. So this is a pro- this is the most challenging aspect of uh, of what we do and what we're facing right now. So, it's uh, you, I mean you're referring to Madame Rabour's uh, review of uh, the way that the Canadian Forces handles sexual misconduct, and, and her review was broad. So all aspects of how we deal with sexual misconduct, from you know like an inappropriate joke all the way to a you know a serious sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she made a number of recommendations. One of those pertains to the military justice system, and that recommendation was to remove jurisdiction from the military justice system for all criminal code sexual offenses. Mm-hmm. 
So that's something she also made an interim recommendation, uh, you know, a year and a half before she re, um, she released her final report. I believe it was a year and a half. I might have the timings wrong on that, uh, but an interim recommendation to for uh, the provost marshal who heads the military police and uh, the director of military prosecutions, me, who runs the uh, military prosecution service, to uh, stop taking these types of cases. So for the police to stop exercising their jurisdiction to investigate and for me to stop exercising the military jurisdiction to to charge and try uh, for military folks for, for, the, for these offenses. In November 2021, both the Provost Marshal and I decided to implement the interim recommendation. Mm-hmm. Now, we were able to do that to different degrees. It's a much more complicated uh, situation and scenario for the military police, and they have continued to do some investigations to make sure that victims are not left out in, in the cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, much easier for for me, I simply drew a line in the sand, and as of November 2021, we were not approving any new cases to go by court-martial for sexual assault. So mm-hmm. even where the military police had investigated a sexual assault and we believed that there was, or they believed that there was evidence to lay charges, uh, we were telling them, okay, go and lay charges in criminal court and we'll have the criminal courts hear those cases. Yeah. Uh, so that's what's been happening since November of 2021. We have continued the cases that were already in our system at, at that point in time. So we still do have some sexual assault cases that are working their way through the military justice system including at all levels of appeal. We have uh, a few that are at uh, waiting for a Supreme Court of Canada decision on a, on a, on a different issue, but the, some of those cases that are wrapped up in that issue are, in fact, sexual assault cases. So uh, I, I would estimate that even if Parliament uh, removes jurisdiction for these cases, we probably have uh, enough cases in the system already that we'll still be doing these cases for about a year and a half, two years before we no longer see these types of cases uh, mm-hmm. at all mm-hmm. if uh, if jurisdiction is removed i think that's the most likely scenario right. I, you know, I have my own personal opinion on that i don't speak for yeah. the minister or or, yeah, or, the, or the canadian forces uh <laughs> on that issue and like i said earlier you know i'm not a policymaker. so at the end of the day um you know i i, I my job is to make the system that's provided to me work right yeah. like parliament says what the offenses are and then we decide when a case is has sufficient evidence is serious enough to, to to take that case to court. If tomorrow Parliament says sexual assault is not a military offense a- anymore, then w- you know we w- will adjust. And uh, if uh, you know they also say something else is uh, is a new offense, then we'll adjust to that too. So uh, that's our you know that's our job to do. Uh, my only concern is that a lot of the rhetoric around mm-hmm. all of this. Um, suggest something that's just fundamentally not true. Mm-hmm. There's an underpinning of a um, a problem of professionalism and skill among the military police and the military mm-hmm. prosecutors. Mm-hmm. And I, I can tell you that that is absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. We have very professional, very skilled military police and military prosecutors. And I, in fact, I would put our prosecutors up against uh, all the prosecutors right across the country. And I sit on the federal, provincial, territorial heads of prosecution committee. So mm-hmm. I meet with all of the other uh, directors. Each, everyone's called something different, whether it's an <laughs> assistant deputy attorney general, whether it's a director of public prosecutions, as in the case of the feds. But, uh, you know, I sit on a committee with all of those folks and we talk about what are the issues, what, you know, what are the challenges and, uh, and how are things going. And, um, I, again, it comes back to there are far more similarities uh, than differences. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are also a number of advantages to our system that I think often go unnoticed, which mm-hmm. is we are fairly well resourced. Our, our cases, oh. although there is the occasional case that runs up against a, you know, a Jordan delay issue, those are really anomalies and it's for, for, for you know, strange reasons. We don't have a, you know, no, ordinarily speaking, none of our cases are have any sort of uh, time issues associated with them. So we are well-resourced. And because there isn't a time pressure, uh, we don't get into that sort of, we don't have a list. You know, if you talk to some, uh, Mm -hmm. every other, well, every other prosecution service, you know, there you have crown prosecutors assigned to go in uh, to do the list, right? You go into court and just process as many cases as you can get through. Uh, in the court's uh, sitting day. We don't have that. Even our most minor cases that we take, they're all treated with the same level of 
seriousness that really a murder trial would be would, mm. would be given. So, mm-hmm. you know, if there are if there is are any issues, evidentiary issues, they're going to be litigated. If there are constitutional issues, they're going to be litigated. Um, our, our accused in our system have access to free defense counsel that are provided by military lawyers in a, in a separate special you know group of uh, you know defense counsel services like fully pretty much fully funded legal aid uh, so wow. you're getting completely free uh, full legal support to litigate every single possible issue with the case wow. so you can be sure <laughs> at the end of the day that if somebody's convicted by court martial uh, their every issue has has been looked at so that's it I, I mean that's a Cadillac system in that in, in that sense. So, there of are a course. lot of you know a lot of uh, strong advantages I think of of the military justice system that get overlooked. Yeah, and I think for anyone who has spent even a little bit of time in the Canadian criminal justice system, we know that there's just 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 a serious shortage of resources, and in terms of our, our jails are overcrowded. We have so many people who are just struggling to get through and really struggle with this idea of justice and what is justice and how do we achieve it given our lack of resources. So just to hear that there is a system in place, it, it kind of makes you wonder how do we how do we translate that into the Canadian justice system too? And I think, again, those who may be social justice oriented, it would be even a sociological phenomenon to go in and kind of review and see how to write about it or learn about it and see how we can translate this into the Canadian justice system as well. And just just to like touch on let, let's let's you know let's let's relax shoulders loose you know we're talking about the heavy topics let's uh, let's go back to law school finish that off a little bit before before we head off into life after law school so we know we know who Colonel Kerr was before law school and during law school you really enjoyed so much of your time and before we go on to the next topic which is what happened afterwards and to hear a little bit about your time between graduating and becoming the director which you are now let's just do you have any advice to give us as students while we're in law school i mean i only have 2 months left and i already feel like i miss law school <laughs> because it just flashes by and it's it's like you said you're just sitting in class and you're observing you're a sponge taking in all this information and when else will you have this opportunity to sit and most of my profs have been such passionate teachers who truly love what they're teaching and they just it just feels like a pleasure to be surrounded by intellects of all different kinds, sharing this knowledge together, growing. What, what advice do you have for us before we leave this chapter of our lives? Yeah, I, you know, I would say uh, don't lose that motivation and enthusiasm. I, mm. You know, take that with you because um, all, all of the things that I found pleasurable about law school, I also found pleasurable about work in the legal field. Okay. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, how much passion and enthusiasm you bring to the table because the opportunities are there. Um, you just sometimes you have to go and find them or sometimes you have to to make them and <laughs> but but you will find people that want to share with mm-hmm. you, that want to help you in your path that will, Uh, be a mentor to you, that will be a a resource, a learning resource for you, uh, and and will help you with whatever it is that that you want to do. So I would say, you know, take that motivation, enthusiasm with you and, uh, and, and don't let anyone stifle it. (laughs) I I think the biggest uh, difference probably is you're coming from an environment that is purpose built to provide wide opportunity and Mm -hmm. be, be, be flexible and be, uh, you know, encourage you to to try different things. Yeah. And you might find yourself suddenly in an environment that's already more structured, mm. that has uh, expectations that you are doing things in a particular way. Uh, but don't let that discourage you. Like funnel that motivation in and, and, and be be an immediately be an active participant in wherever you find yourself. Of course. And yeah. uh, I, I think that people people recognize and they want that and it makes you more attractive to uh, the folks around you who you're working for who you're working with and uh, and then the opportunities will just will they'll be there yeah of course and it's like I always say this we have worked way too hard to be unhappy in what we're doing and like we're not we're not fixed in the places that we are we can always 
just follow our hearts, even though it is scary, but to follow your heart and to do what you're truly passionate about, I think that risk is always worth it if it leads you to where you're happy. And so that's, I mean, that's that's really wonderful to keep keep that that motivation. And so let's get to the next chapter of your life. So you've graduated law school and what what was it like right after? Did you immediately go in and become a lawyer with the military? What was that like? Yeah. Were there any deployments that you really enjoyed? Any countries that you were sent to? Things like that. <laughs> yeah. So I so I I, I articled I articled with the military and uh, and like I said, my articling principal was uh, was mm-hmm. a prosecutor, long senior uh, crown, and uh, so but I did do the way that the office of the JAG worked is that. Uh, the articling students did a, a rotation in different areas of law. Mm-hmm. And that was actually a really good experience for me because it, it taught me something that I don't think I, I truly understood until I got there, which was by then I had gotten it in my mind that I liked operational law and I liked criminal law. And as long as I could work in either of those areas, I would be happy. And I hated admin law administrative law and I didn't <laughs> want to do an administrative law job. And I did, you know, one of my, so I did three rotations while I was articling. One of them was with the military prosecution service, which I loved and knew, yeah. knew, knew I would love. And then I did. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. And then I did a three month rotation in an operational law job and a three month rotation in an administrative law job. Okay. And my operational law job was with a, uh, a, an, an area that was was doing really legal advice to strategic policy development in in operational law. So it was it was things like reviewing the uh, Canadian Forces Manual on boarding operations. Okay. Which is just like huge manual on everything to do with naval <laughs> naval boarding, and uh, it was not particularly satisfying to me because it was a it was a long drawn out review process uh that was part of a much longer strategic review mm-hmm. process that was if it had any impact it was going to be five or six years down the road and and um it wasn't it wasn't a social job you know it was yeah. a it was a go back to your office <laughs> and just you know review the next chapter and then review the next chapter and review the next chapter and yeah it was operational law and the you know the substance was interesting to me but the kind of job was not satisfying to me mm. and then i did a 3 month rotation in administrative law and it was in compensation benefits pensions and estates okay uh but it what it was was reviewing real people's files it was like you know okay. somebody had was challenging that they should get a benefit and didn't or or was treated, you know, mistreated in a particular way mm-hmm. or uh, or or one of our offices that 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 deals with financial policy had a question about the proper interpretation of a, a of a of a policy mm-hmm. and but because they were trying to apply it to a real person and so what i realized was i was going through a you know a, I, I was involved with a file that had a real person attached yeah and there needed to be a legal interpretation to treat this person fairly and lawfully. And I was helping that decision maker do that. And in the process, I was also affecting the strategic level because however they interpreted the policy in respect of this mm-hmm. person was also going to set the precedent for how they treated yeah. everyone. So not only was I dealing with a particular person's case, yeah. I was having strategic and, as we see, tactical effect <laughs> at the same time. And I loved it. I love when this happens when when you dislike something and then life surprises you. Yeah. And you think, wow. And, and I and I think that is true of anyone in law school. There's so many things where I thought, oh no, you know, that's that's not for me. That's not for me. I mean, a lot of people know that I was I was not very much into to the business and corporate law and things like that. And then I took business associations because it's mandatory for us at Queen's Law. And I went into it very close-minded thinking, no, no, it's not for me. It's not for you. And then I got Professor Yeldon, who just blew my mind because he I ended up really enjoying the course. Yeah. And I thought, what? And so I, I love when our what we think we don't like is then challenged with something we're confronted with. And I think that is a profession of law too, because we don't know what's out there until we do it. So how do we know what we like? 
or don't like until until we we get that opportunity presented to us. And I think the same goes with military law. It's not necessarily something that all of us know very well. Of course, you had a very rich background with your family in the military. And then you went to RMC and you built this amazingly rich background. However, that does not mean that's the only path to pursue this profession. And how do we know whether it's for us or not if we don't give it a chance? And it seems like there's so much incredible exposure and resources. And anyone who I think has an interest in especially criminal law might end up feeling surprised by how enjoyable this is. Or if you're interested in international law, they might get surprised and see that, hey, humanitarian law, hello, here's a profession for you. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't know, I just, I love hearing when the life surprises you. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that's right. I think you have to keep an open mind and uh, and it's not always about the, as, I, as it was for me, I discovered it really wasn't about the area of law at all. I was so fixated on that, but <laughs> It, that was less important to me than the kind of job I was doing and the people mm. I was working with. And mm. and prosecutions just gave me everything, like all the aspects, right? There's the social aspect, there's the real people's files, there's the justice component, uh, there's the strategic effect, all of that at the same time, and the courtroom work and, you know, the advocacy piece and yeah. uh, that you couldn't, you can't get anywhere other than... Well, I guess it could corporate uh, litigation, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> I, for me, criminal criminal law criminal trials is uh, is a much more interesting environment than, uh, than corporate litigation. But yeah, I'm sure others will disagree with me on that. Too. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a Justice Donald McLeod in in a couple of weeks, and and he always says that criminal law it's a he says it's the sexiest law. <laughs> and there's something to be said there. You know what? There's it's in the movies, and it's there's just something there's just something there. But I, I I'm showing my bias. Sorry, sorry, I'm showing a bias. And before we wrap up into our last question, I, I just wanted to ask if there are any lasting words you have to tell people why why work as a military lawyer? Why? I mean, it's not just, I mean, I looked into the funding. This compensation, it's not bad. You know, yeah. you really get that bread. <laughs> yeah, you do fairly well. Yeah. I, I mean, the pay is, is great right off the bat. Yeah. And, uh, and don't overlook the pension as well. The military pension... Ooh, ooh. And uh, public service pensions are are, are pretty uh, pretty spectacular. You know, there's not too many places left offering uh, uh, defined benefit uh, pensions, and uh, and and you know, you start earning the you know pensionable time starts the, the minute you sign on the dotted line. So, <laughs> That's so true. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, the benefits are great, but but more much more importantly, the work is incredibly satisfying. And if you can't find the kind of job or the area uh, of law that you want to practice in within the military, mm-hmm. you're probably not trying hard enough because, <laughs> uh, you know, there's just so many, so many opportunities. Yeah, it seems like there's so many niches and, and like you said, resources and people along the way who will hopefully help you connect with the kind of law that you want to do. And, and it's meaningful work at the end of the day. It's, it's if you're if you care about working with people for humankind, I feel like you will find some interest in military law. Absolutely. <laughs> and so let's let's go into our last question. This one's a real griller. So if you're ready for it. <laughs> so actually, on the show, I always ask people, what is your favorite place to eat in Kingston when you were here studying at Queen's Law? And I realized that I never shared my favorite place to eat. So I'll tell you, Colonel Kerr, that I love eating at this restaurant called Manouche. It's a small family-owned business, local Kingston, and it's right on Princess and Division, and I've been going there since last year. That's when I discovered it. So affordable, and it's these Lebanese flatbreads that are freshly made for you, and the people there are so wonderful. It's one of the very few halal restaurants, hello to my brothers and sisters, that you could go to just within walking distance to campus. Super fresh, super affordable. That's Manouche. And I, I, yeah, I recommend to everyone. It's just perfect if you just have an hour off between classes to go and grab something to eat. So that's I, I recommend it to you if you're in town and you want to eat yeah. somewhere. Oh, and, that sounds great. I'm and, always looking to try yeah. new places. <laughs> and I want to hear from you. What was your favorite place to eat when you were here? I was a Woodenheads guy. I ah. always love to go to Woodenheads. <laughs> but uh, lately I've been making my own pizzas. So uh, I, I'm, I'm getting pretty good at it. But uh, Woodenheads is still pretty <laughs> tough to beat. They've they they run a great operation there. You make your own dough at home. I make my own dough what? and the the whole bit. Yeah. yeah. How do you find the time? <laughs> it's actually not. I mean, the first few times you do it, it's a bit of a challenge. But once you get in the routine, it's actually yeah, not that hard. Oh, 
okay. You know, it's funny because we've had so many people on the show so far, and no one actually mentioned wooden heads, which I feel like is a Kingston staple. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. But I mean, I haven't, I haven't lived in Kingston for a while, so there may That's be uh, maybe other places out there <laughs> I'm missing. And uh, there were, I mean, there were tons of great restaurants uh, back in the day as well. I know my my wife uh, used to love as a. Queen's undergrad would go to Copper Penny regularly. So oh, yes. she, just for nostalgia reasons, she always <laughs> wants to go to Copper Penny when we're in town. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They, I don't know what it is, but it's, I go there for breakfast sometimes. And it's a very simple breakfast, but it just feels homey. <laughs> well, they were one of the only, I, I, it's, I'm sure it's changed now, but they were, they were the only one of the only places we knew that was using like the, the chicken stock on the French fries. Oh. Now a lot of different places do oh. that, but that was like their claim to fame about uh, one guy that's been are you know, known 20 for their years French fries. That's true. Well, here you have it. Three restaurants. Try Manouche for some Lebanese flatbread, Woodenhead's staple pizza place, and Copper Penny just for the French fries. That's true. Kingston's pretty good for food. Yeah. Pretty good. Pretty good. Definitely. Yeah. And so before we sign off, just going to give a big, big, big thanks to you, Colonel Kurt. Thank you so much for coming to the radio station live on air on 101.9 FM CFRC in Kingston, Ontario, to be here and be so generous and share your life story, your insights. I know you're a very busy person. So thank you for taking time out of your day to come here and join us on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having <laughs> me. I had a lot, of, a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is actually a lot of fun to be here at the radio station together. And I also want to give a big shout out and thank you to CFRC. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much for organizing this and letting us come and always have been so gracious to us. Thank you to the CDO, to Julie Banting, and to to Mike Molas for helping us find people who have graduated and keeping track and keeping us connected to build this network, which is so wonderful for us to be able to reach out to people and just know what should we do once we graduate. A big thank you to Tim Butters and my partner in crime, Mark Dean. Thank you so much. Would not be possible without you. And also to you, the audience, we have viewers listening from everywhere, all across Canada, all across the world, from down under, Germany, everywhere. We've got people everywhere. So we are so lucky to have an audience supporting us. And if you want to hear more of What's Next with Afshin, you can listen to us on Spotify, SoundCloud, any of your favorite streaming services. That's at QLawPod Special Series. So this is Afshin Chattery signing off on the first premiere episode of What's Next with Afshin Season 2. Catch us next week for another one. Thank you.